We're looking at Mark now. Remember, parables are identified by the words like and as. They're fictional stories to illustrate truths. He shared them so his followers would understand, but that his enemies would not understand. And of course, without the Spirit of God, people do not understand the things of God. And no matter how smart they are, the seed is taken away. The devil just plucks it away and, and people forget simple truths. That's why the world looks at us and says they're nuts. They think we're nuts. We know they're nuts. But they think we're nuts because they don't understand spiritual things, why we believe what we believe and, and so forth. But here we find uh, these two parables, the fifth and sixth, are really small. And some would say these are just similes. So I've put them both in tonight's lesson. G. Campbell Morgan says that the truth of these two parables is simply that Jesus was mightier than the forces of evil. He's mightier than the forces of evil. And I love the verse, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We have supernatural power abiding in our hearts. We carry the sword of the spirit, which is supernaturally powerful as well. But we're thankful for the mightier force in us. And so we look here. Mark is the writer here. He writes to people outside of Palestine, many Romans and Gentiles that lived outside. Remember, he was related to Barnabas, and of course he was involved in a little dispute over Barnabas, one of Paul's traveling companions. And Mark is really, uh, he's called in the scripture, John Mark. So they're the same person. And he wrote this just after Peter's death, and there's no doubt Peter's contribution as an eyewitness probably helped him understand some things. But we talk about that. We always need to remind people that it was written under the inspiration of God. So even though he spent time listening to the stories of the disciples who were eyewitnesses of events, and like Luke wrote, he listened to the eyewitnesses of events, God would still supernaturally inspire them, breathe on them to write. And so he writes this great gospel the first gospel written in all the gospels is the book of Mark. It's the earliest written gospel. And uh, we know that Matthew and Luke repeat 93% of Mark's material, where Mark is more unique. And Mark presents Christ as a savior. I mean, as, excuse me, as a servant and a savior, but he presents Christ as a servant. And of course, there's no genealogy because servants often didn't know who their parents were. And if you want the gospel that's chronological, in other words, in order, from start to finish, it would be Mark. They're not all in chronological order. Mark is in perfect chronological order. So when you want to read the gospel that's in the perfect order, Mark's the one. He's also more graphic than the other gospel writers. And these verses in here, verses 20 and 21, are unique to Mark. Nobody else comments on these verses. And so we pick up here in Mark 3, and uh, verse uh, 20, and the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. Now this is kind of an idiom because these really called friends here, really the word has to do with them being related to him. So this was Jesus' family, and, and other scriptures bear out that his family was concerned about him. And they're concerned because his enemies are saying he's nuts. And of course, the scribes jump on board and begin to accuse him. And that's why we have this wonderful story. And he called unto them, he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Kate, Satan cast out Satan? 
So they had said he's controlled and possessed by Satan. He's, he's under the hand of Satan. Uh, let me back up to verse 22. We didn't read that one. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, He hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of devils, he casteth out devils. And so Jesus now is going to share a parable. And uh, his followers are going to understand the parable. And we all understand it as well. Uh, and that is uh, that, he, um, that he cast out devils. If he was a devil, why would he cast out devils? And so the truth is just clear that Jesus was just more mighty, more powerful than any of the satanic forces. Well, the people had come to eat bread. And now the bread of life is going to give them more than physical bread. He's going to give them spiritual bread. And uh, so it's awesome stuff. John 7, 5 tells us these are his relatives concerned. And then the scribes come along, falsely accusing. Remember, the scribes are the lawyers of the day. They plan to take charge of him, to take control of him. Uh, they said because he's beside himself. Remember, Festus said that about Paul in Acts 26. He's beside himself. It can tra be translated several ways in your Bible, and I have those ways. It can be translated as bewitched and different ways. So people were saying he's nuts, and of course the scribes jump on board, and his family, friends of the family, no doubt, are concerned about it. And so uh, the grammar in the original means they kept saying it. So this is sort of the devil's thing to start drumming up some something against Jesus that he's beside himself. And we know the scribes were, of course, writers of the law. They were faithless, not faithful, but faithless. And they come down from Jerusalem, the capital city, uh, the city of Herod's temple. Uh, what, a, what a city that is. If you ever get to visit Jerusalem, of course, it's just an awesome experience to walk the streets and see the massive walls and the wailing wall and the different gates and the, you know, all the Bible stories that go along with it. I was thrilled to be able to go on a tour and be able to speak uh, in a couple of spots that I really enjoyed. It's just an awesome city. You got to drink out of Hezekiah's stream under the city and just, just really a magnificent city. And, and that's where all the center of activity stemmed from. I mean, it all poured out from Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin met there. So here are the lawyers, the scribes, and uh, they come down. And uh, this word Beelzebub, uh, we've got the meaning in here. Uh, originally, it meant Lord of the Flies. It was an ancient Canaanite deity, but over time it was used uh, to refer to Satan himself. And of course, what they're accusing Jesus of uh, in these passages would violate the law. But, uh, uh, you know, they would, would have to have Roman permission to crucify him. They already had the Jewish hierarchy behind them. The Sanhedrin was okay with getting rid of Jesus, but the Romans weren't yet okay with it. And so this false charge, uh, verse 30, because they said he had an unclean spirit, that would be enough to put him to death based on Deuteronomy 13.5 and 18.20. We're not going to look at those verses tonight. But the lesson Jesus is teaching is simple. How can Satan cast out Satan? Because Beelzebub was a term used for Satan at that time. Even though originally it had to do with a Canaanite deity, it was now used in this time and era. And words sometimes are like that, just like in our culture. Growing up, you know, we'd see a pretty girl and we'd say, she's cool. 
Now they say she's hot. So words change over time, and Beelzebub at this time meant satanic or a person of Satan. And so they're accusing him and saying he's satanic, and he's going to teach a lesson that, uh, that's this, that he is more powerful than Satan and so forth. And his lesson is going to be, he answers them in verses 24 to 26, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So if I'm against Satan, but I'm Satan as well, that's not going to work. And if a house be divided against itself, it cannot stand. That's why a divided church, the devil always wants to divide a church. He works so hard at dividing us, you know. He'd love nothing more than for one family in church to be upset at another family, and he'll work at that, and he'll work at that, and he'll work at that because he's a divider-in-chief. He's just a problem. He, one of the things in Proverbs 6 is those that cause uh, division or discord with the brethren, between brethren. And so you're either a uniter or you're a divider. You've got to make up what, what, your mind what you're going to be in the church. If you're going to unite, you're going to always pour water on the rumors and squelch them and say to people, you know, I don't know that that's true. Let's go talk to the person about it. Oh, no, I didn't want to, get to go any further. Well, then, you know, don't tell me about it if we're not going to deal with it as it needs to be dealt with biblically. And I'm saying, I'm not saying me personally. I do need to know because I'm the pastor. But I'm saying when someone comes to you, you just say, hold on a minute. Shouldn't you go to the person with the problem? Or maybe have the pastor and that person and you guys meet and see if you can work this out. Because he's a divider. And Jesus' point is well made. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man entered into a strong man's house and spoils his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he'll spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins... I want to stop right there. He says, he, he clearly points out that here we have a, a plundered house and a divided house. Both of them will fall. One, if you bind the man of the house and you can take everything, that's going to destroy the house. Another is if you have division, you divide the house, that's going to cause the house to fall. And that's what both these little parables teach. Verses 27 to 29 is, is one parable, and verses uh, 23 to 26 is another. And so here he makes it very clear that this is the devil's work and exorcists would always invoke a higher power to get rid of a weaker power. How could he cast out devils if he was the devil? Would Satan be divided against his own kingdom? No, the kingdom wouldn't be able to stand. And so he clearly teaches that this accusation that he's of the devil is totally foolish because he's been casting out devils. Think of the stupidity of that accusation. Uh, you know, it's clear that they didn't have anything to accuse him of, so they had to make something up because Jesus lived perfect. He never sinned. He was impeccable. He couldn't have sinned because of his nature. He was God in the flesh, you know. He felt temptation and that feeling of temptation, but he never yielded. He was hungry when the devil offered him bread, but he never yielded because he's God and he never sinned. So here he illustrates the foolishness of their accusation by his parables. Now, who could bind this strong man, Satan? Who could, the strong man of our text, who could bind him? Jesus could. 
Look at Revelation chapter 20, because I'll ask you here to explain what will happen to Satan prior to the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapters 20, chapter 20, excuse me, verses 1 to 3. What's going to happen here? If Jesus could bind him in Revelation 20, he could bind him in Mark chapter 3. It just wasn't God's time. You know, when God ushers in the kingdom, Satan will be bound for that whole thousand years. And it'll be a perfect rule. I mean, in the kingdom, of course, we come back with him, rule and reign with him. But in that thousand year millennium, we aren't capable of sinning because we have a new nature. And we have a new body. We've been totally glorified at this point. And so Jesus is going to have a perfect rule. But remember, there's a lot of people that don't get saved. There's a lot of people that don't get, don't get killed in great battles. And the, battle, the, the battle of Armageddon, a lot of people survive it. And there's people born for a thousand years. Babies are born. And people are going to be saved. There's going to be great Bible teachers. There's going to be people come to know him and so forth. But you, you think of that, Satan is bound for that whole time. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him. That he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed for a little season. Of course, when he's loosed... He's going to rally all the armies of the world against Jesus. And of course, then we had this big battle of the nations and the Lord wins again. Jerusalem will be singled out twice for destruction in the future. And I got to even clarify that because they're, they're singled out all the time for destruction by their neighbors. But in the future, the battle of Armageddon just before the millennium at the end of the tribulation period. And then the battle of nations at the end of the thousand years are both all about the whole world wanting to kill the Jews and kill their leader, Jesus. Because the Jews get saved in the tribulation period, 144,000 of them, and so they're hated now more. And Jesus, as their leader, is hated as well. And after that thousand years of him controlling all the people, the people want to get rid of him. And they're lost. Not everybody's going to be saved in the, in the millennial kingdom. So they're going to rally against him, and once again, he wins the battle. So we know that the Lord has power over the devil. I love a song. When I was a kid, I used to go to a campground in Lake Michigan called Maranatha, and there's a guy by the name of Hildeen Helverson. Crazy name. And unless your name's Hildeen Helverson, I'm sorry. But he would sing. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world, but instead he died for you and me. Hildeen, I don't know if you ever heard that name, but if you ever hear that guy sing, You'll never forget it. I was a teenager and I thought that was awesome. And then another guy named Steele who would do chalk art at artistry during the singing and during the program. And those are great times as a kid. But he could have called 10,000 angels. But you know what? It wasn't time yet. God wanted him to die. And Satan, of course, thought, I've defeated him. But three days later, you know, that's exciting stuff. He came out of the grave. So Satan's ultimately going to be defeated. Then Jesus deals with this next little portion of Scripture here about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Verily I see in you all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies therewith, whosoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost 
hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Boy, this passage has been debated by scholars over the years, and we're going to talk about it a little bit tonight, because this is a serious statement in Scripture. There's one thing that will never be forgiven, and that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Of course, if you've read ahead, you already know what I'm going to say here, but... Um, we know that means it's an unpardonable, unforgivable sin and requires eternal damnation. However, the verdict belongs to God, not to men, and God knows our hearts. The word damnation, of course, includes separation. It's translated many ways in John 3, 18 and 19. We're going to go there and read those verses because John 3, 19, John 5, 24 we're going to talk about this for a few moments, and I'll give you the answer, but first we're going to read some scriptures. John chapter 3, verse 19. I've heard misteaching about it. I've heard heresy about it, so we're going to look at it tonight. John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. But verse 18 he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So now what is this one sin that's unforgivable? And there have been people that have twisted the scripture and preached things that are way out in left field. We're going to deal with it tonight. Now, we know here in uh, John 5, 24, another verse to look at. And we know this verse as well. Some of you can quote it. Starts with verily, verily. Um, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that hath sent me hath everlasting life. Now mark that. That word hath is present tense. Do you know the moment you trusted Jesus, you became an eternal child of God? You began to live eternally at that point. Did you know before you were saved, you were eternally damned? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're walking around, you're breathing oxygen, you're going to work, you're maybe having kids and, and living the life, but you know what? You're eternally dead. That's what Scripture teaches. But the difference in the dead man and the living man is one has eternal life, and that's because why? He put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us eternal life. And once you have that eternal life, you will never perish. Eternal means eternal. You can't lose it. Amen. Nothing can pluck you out of God's hand. Satan can't get you out of God's hand. So believers cannot commit the unpardonable sin. That's one big point that you need to remember. And the unpardonable sin is just simply a different way of stating someone who rejects God. We'll look at some scriptures that go along with that tonight. So here we find there, uh, he's teaching here, and here that they were rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, they were under conviction. And the scribes, you know, they were the people referred to in verse 30. It says here, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. They knew in their hearts he was real. And I've got down here for you to explain why men are condemned. Well, he that believeth not is condemned already. So simply write in there. You can write it now or later. They don't believe. <laughs> They're condemned because, condemned because they don't believe in the Lord. 
And how do these two verses help explain the meaning of our text? Well, the verses referred to here, I have a typo. I was supposed to include those verses we just read, John 3.18 and John 5.24. They clearly explain that if you don't believe, you're already condemned. You see, you're, you're already on the, the wide road to hell if you do not believe. If you're here tonight and you're not a believer, you're going down the wide road of destruction right now. You're, all, you're dead. You're eternally damned right now. But there's hope. If you repent of your sins and trust Jesus, then you'll be eternally saved. And so clearly those verses make it very clear. They make very clear that if you're saved, you can't commit the unpardonable sin. But if you're lost, you're in the practice right now, you're, you're committing that. If you're under conviction, you're in the process of committing this sin. And what do you believe is the unpardonable sin? And I have down here written, when one rejects the Holy Spirit's convicting call to the point of crossing the deadline of Romans chapter 1. In other words... The Holy Spirit will come to someone and convict them. He'll convict them of their sin and, and he'll tell them they're lost and they know they're lost, they know they're in sin and they'll ignore that. He'll come to them again and they'll ignore that. They'll ignore it and they'll ignore it and they'll ignore it and ignore it and ignore it and I'm having a hard time saying that word anymore but they just reject the Spirit's call. They may get angry, you know, when someone's under conviction they'll act crazy sometimes. They'll just blow up at a Christian because they're so miserable in their sin, and the Spirit's making them miserable. I tell people who are saved and backslidden, you're miserable, aren't you? And they always say, yeah, yeah I am. How'd you know that? Because the Spirit's living in you, and He's never going to leave you. So when we sin, we're miserable. But the lost man, when he's prodding their heart to save them, and they reject him and reject him, they're miserable, they're angry, eventually they'll just turn to sin and they'll just love the pleasures of the world and drown out the call of the Spirit. And eventually, and we don't know when this is, we need to witness to every creature and witness every opportunity to every person on this planet. Because we don't know if they've crossed the deadline, and that's something we have to understand. This is all God's timing and God's calendar. But there'll be a time in their life where they'll cross over to a point where the Spirit will never speak to them and convict them again. And Romans 1 fits perfectly there. We'll look at that in a minute. But the grammar in verse 22 indicates attitude, not an isolated incident. It's not like the Spirit comes to one kid one time and says you need to be saved, and that kid doesn't listen, and then that kid's damned for hell. That's an attitude. It's a consistent attitude of I don't want it. I enjoy my, they don't say it, but they enjoy their sin. I love my sin so much. And I don't want to be a holy roller. I don't want to go to church. I don't want this religion stuff. And they choose to stay miserable. And, and they're, they're in a process, not an isolated incident. But most believe rejecting the convicting work of the Spirit for an extended time will cause them to stop drawing us towards repentance and thus the unpardonable sin. And we don't know when that is. So don't, don't leave tonight thinking, well, that guy that I witnessed to, you know, he came close, but he rejected God and he's damned for eternity. No, you don't know that. Only God does. Only God does. And, and, and you still look for an opportunity to help that person come to know Jesus. 
I love Charles Ryrie. He's, uh, he's with the Lord, but uh, he says this sin can't be committed today. Well, I don't agree with that. So others say it's a sin of the heart, not of the lips. Scholars assure us that believers can't commit this sin because we have eternal life. That we do agree with. If this sin can be committed today, Ryrie says it can't. But if it can, I kind of think it can be. It's clearly rejection of the spirit that's trying to convict you to be saved. You see, when we're born again, we're washed and we're regenerated by who? Titus 3.5. We're washed we're by, well, let's turn there. Obviously, uh, you're looking at me like you never heard of that verse, but we're going we're gonna to look at Titus, I believe it's 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, we, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's talking about Jesus by the washing, the regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? The Holy Ghost makes us a new person. See, it's not our righteousness. The Lord saves us, and it's the Holy Spirit that makes us new. He moves in, takes up residence. Now you've got someone living inside you that changes everything, right? And that's why I have these battles. I talk about old Dan and new Dan. New Dan says, don't do that. Old Dan says, boy, it'd be fun. Nobody would know. And I have this battle all the time. My new nature which is comprised of the Holy Spirit, living in my, in my spirit, in my most holy place. One day I'll teach on the temple and the three divisions, the outer court like our body, the holy place like our soul, and the most holy place like our spirit. And boy, there's some great teaching out there, and I'll share that with you. But that's, that's a long lesson, not for tonight. It's even so long we'd be in Sunday morning service probably close to an hour preaching. So... If that happens, you'll have to just uh, be patient. But, you know, he took up residence in my most holy place. He's in there. I don't know where that is. It's in there somewhere, though. You know, the Bible uses so many different ways to describe the Spirit in us. It talks about our bowels. That's interesting. It talks about our heart. Now, that's a, we know what our bowels are. We know what our heart is. And he's in there somewhere, and I can't explain it, but boy, he's there. And when I'm sinning, I, I know he's there. I feel him, and he, he makes me feel rotten about my sin. It's a wonderful thing to have him living in us, but it's also a terrible thing when you want to sin. There he is. Part of your sin, you're, and you're taking the temple of God, and you're doing that, with the Lord living in you. Remember that when you sin. The Holy Spirit's in you. In fact, the whole Trinity's in there, right? Remember the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are, every, are in every place. Anyway, let's pick up here the application. John 16, 8 says, He will, I'm giving you the answer, you can look it up later, reprove the world of sin. This word means to bring under conviction. Isn't it fascinating that all men are born with a conscience? John 1.9 says we all have an inner light. Scripture says in Romans 2 that we have a conscience, even before we're saved. God has put within every man, the Bible says in Titus, the grace of God hath appeared to every man. Did you know every child knows right from wrong? Well, you take a four-year-old, he knows 
not to throw a rock and hit the teacher in the head. He knows that's wrong. Even if he's taught by raunchy drug addict parents, he still has a conscience teaching him right from wrong. So what happens? The Bible says all we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We were created in God's image. We were given a conscience that's a natural tendency to gravitate towards God, to search for God. But we like our sin, and we get older and older, and we were learning to love the sin of the world and the worldliness. And before you know it, we're a rotten, rotten sinner. We've been a sinner since we're born. We get more rotten as time goes on. And we need to be born again. We still know right from wrong, but we can have a seared conscience and just ignore the, the, the voices within us. But when the Holy Spirit moves in, He never leaves you. So even though you had a conscience, you weren't born again until you repented. And that's why everyone who's ever lived knows deep within their heart they're a sinner. <clears throat> they may not admit it. But that conscience has told them that was wrong. Before my kids were saved, I mean if they're three, and they did something, I could go out there and I could look at them, and I can just know that they did it. I can almost know by looking at the four faces which one did it. Because their conscience makes them look so guilty. Now, they're not saved, but they know they did wrong because their conscience told them so. But they're not saved yet. But isn't it, great, isn't it great that God put a conscience in people? Could you imagine this world without a conscience? I was on an island in Panama with Dennis Rasmussen. He's on the Discovery Channel, deals with primates. He's not a believer. I gave him a great book about DNA and the evolution of theory and crisis and stuff. Never got it back. It's probably a good thing. And we're on the island. He knows I'm a pastor. And he's an educated man, and, and, and uh, I know he's a smart guy. And we're, Mary and another lady in our church were there with him, and we're eating, cooking spaghetti. And he's talking about our relationship to the primates of the world. And, uh, of course, I have a great little poem I like to quote. I was a monkey swinging through the trees, lost my tail, and became a Ph.D. I didn't use that one on him, but I, I just, we're talking about, the difference in animals and people. And he says there's no difference in animals and people. Later, about an hour later, he's telling us about this one particular monkey he studied where when the, when the father decides to, he'll grab the monkey out of the mother's arms, rip the head off, eat the brains, and throw the body and skull down to the earth. And I'm like, what? And I said to him, well, Dennis, how does the mother and all the other monkeys react to that? Well, initially the mother, you know, doesn't give the baby up, but they all just go on about life. And I said, Dennis, don't you see this? That's the difference. They don't have a conscience. I mean, you go up to a sinner and you grab their baby and throw them out of a tree and rip their head off. That, that, everybody that sees that is upset because their conscience says that was murder, that was wrong. You can get to a place where your conscience is seared, but you still have a conscience. It may be seared. But even the world knows certain things are wrong. They may not admit it, but deep in their soul they know this is wrong. They just don't admit it for one reason or another. <clears throat> now, 
Let's look at Romans chapter 1. This is a portion of scripture I was going to share, or I still plan to, if I'm asked to speak at your breakfast, which Brother Jim had asked me to speak at. And then Brother Jim ate all the food, stole everything, and I've never been able to speak there. Gary, Gary, Gary didn't put me up to that. That was totally me. But anyway, Romans chapter 1. Finish the following sentences. Look in verse 21. Because that when they knew God, now that's an interesting word, knew. It's not the same word where we know God as believers. This has to do with their conscience saying, God is real. You need to trust in him, that conscience. And so here it says, let's back up. For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed in heaven against all unrighteousness and, un, un, and ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word means to suppress the truth. The conscience is speaking to them. They're living in unrighteousness and ungodliness, and they do not respond to the truth. Because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it unto them. That's the conscience we talked about in Romans 2. That's, that's you know, the grace of God has appeared to all men. That, that's what that's talking about. These are lost people who were aware of God. God showed it unto them. In fact, even from verse 24, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so they are without excuse. The word made there is a word poemo. The word made is the word poemo. That's our word poem. Did you know that when you're not right with God, your life doesn't make sense? It's like a poem that doesn't rhyme. God is a God of creative beauty. And when he designed us, he designed us like well-written poetry. Our life makes sense. Everything fits together. It rhymes. People look at us and say they really have it all together. What is it about that person? That's when God has a hold of our life. But anyway, um, it says here, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so they are without excuse. Here it says here that creation speaks to the heart and people are without excuse. No one can say I never had an opportunity. Oh, they had the voice of their conscience. They had the voice of creation. And I do believe when someone wants to be saved and wants to know God, God will make a way, whether it's a missionary. There are people that never had anyone share the gospel that got saved. Think of Helen Keller. Think of that. The girl could not possibly communicate when she finally learned how to communicate and read Braille and answer and write Braille. They said, they explained the gospel to her. and She said, I already knew him. I'm just glad now I know his name. God manifested himself to Helen Keller. And so God makes it clear with the conscience and with creation. And then, of course, the Christian is the third voice. But now we get to verse 21. Because that when they knew, when they knew God, now are these saved people? No, they're described as ungodly, unrighteous, who suppress the truth. These are not saved people. So when it says they knew God, means they knew about him, knew of him, knew he was real, knew he created the world. They felt him in their conscience. And when they knew God, look what it says. 
They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. So first of all, their foolish heart was darkened. These people are crossing God's deadline. Look at verse 24. <clears throat> Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanliness through their lust of their own bodies to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So now he gave them up to dishonor their bodies. They knew all about God. God had spoken to them. They could have been saved, but they rejected God. They loved their ungodliness and their unrighteousness and suppressed the truth. And now what's happened? What's happened is their heart is darkened, and we find their bodies are dishonored. And now he gives them up to vile affections. Look at verse 26. Uh, well, verse 25, we have to read it. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. Think of that. Worshiping creatures more than the Creator. Do you know in India they believe the cows are holy? Holy cow! And they believe rats are reincarnated Indians. And I think, rats, you know? So they don't kill the rats, which eat up all the grain. They don't slaughter the cow and eat that. And guess which country has more people dying of hunger than any country? They worship cows, for crying out loud. And we have in America people who worship animals. I, I, I love animals. Not all animals. I didn't love dogs a whole lot. Now I got a dog that got my heart, and I love this dog. But I see an advertisement that comes on. I mean, we don't have advertisement about saving babies from abortion, but there's an advertisement that comes on. It's a great ad. If you're an animal lover, you like the ad. It's all about they're playing this music and showing these sad animals, this cat with a draining eye and shivering dog. And it's a touching ad, and I'm thinking, isn't that something? I think people, we do know, I don't think I know and you know too, that people actually think animals are equal, equal to us and that they are, uh, you know, worthy of treatment just as good as a baby, uh, you know, or a child. And, and obviously some people worship animals. Some people worship rocks, amulets and stones and, and, and so forth. But anyway, I read that verse. I got off the subject. So let's go to verse 26. For this cause, what, what's the cause? Suppressing the truth, ignoring their conscience, loving sin, for this cause, God gave them up to what? Vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also men leaving the natural use of women burning their lust one toward another. That doesn't mean, by the way, like I said, we don't know where the deadline is. There are homosexuals that have been saved. There's lesbians that have been saved. So we're not saying that everybody that's become gay or whatever is going to hell automatically. That's not what Scripture teaches. But that is one of the signs of people who have crossed over and ignored the Holy Spirit to the point where God just turned their bodies over to vile affections. Don't misunderstand. I am not saying they don't have an opportunity to be saved. Whosoever will may come. And that's still true in Revelation 22. Whosoever wants to come and drink of the water can drink freely. Amen? Anybody can be saved. We don't know where this deadline is, but we know that here are some signs of people who have crossed it. And finally, look at verse 28. And even they that did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So God said, I'm even turning their mind over. They're so out of whack and out of sorts, they don't even realize now their sin. 
And when people get like this, that's why they don't have any compassion for the unborn. They don't have any compassion for, for, for people outside of their circle of people they can benefit from. And they don't have any conviction of sin. Nothing's wrong. I was teaching a class in philosophy years ago, and we were talking about the relevance of the Bible. And I said, all right, is it wrong? Now, I'm teaching Christian people. Is it wrong if nobody knows two people who are happily married cheat on their spouses and have an affair? Of course, all the hands went up, and I'm teaching, remember, this is part of apologetics, all right? So I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate. And I said, why is it wrong? Because the Bible says it. Wait a minute. The world's already said the Bible's not relevant. So we're not going to, where are we going to get the truth to prove? Of course, we know the Bible's relevant, but I'm saying, well, I'm telling the students, prove that it's wrong without the Bible. I said, now remember, neither spouse found out. Nobody's hurt. And I had him stumped. Because you see, the Bible is the word of God. And did you know our country based most of its laws, initially all of its laws on the Bible? Do you know there are still laws in the books that say it's wrong to fornicate? It's illegal to have an affair. It's illegal to look at porn. Porn, by the way, the word porn comes from the word pornography. The word porn, which is translated fornication, is also translated pornography. So when you're looking at porn, you're cheating on your spouse. Did you know that? hope none of you are. But did you know without God's word, we have no foundation for right and wrong? And I got the students to admit there's no way you can say to society that it's wrong to have an affair without the foundation of Scripture. That's why it's so important that we believe that our country was built on the word of God and our laws came from the word of God. Our three branches of government come out of Scripture. All that stuff comes out of the Bible. And that's why it's so important that we take our Constitution for face value and not say, well, it needs to progress and change with time because people change. No. And I'm getting too political here because I'm not getting into politics. I'm just saying our Constitution is clear that it's based on the Word of God. And the Bill of Rights gives us the right to worship God and to believe His Word and see without God's Word, we're going to have a hard time. And that's why when I talk to a sinner, if they say, I don't believe the Bible, I say, well, can I read you something from it anyway? Well, I guess. And then they get under conviction. You know why? This is supernatural. <laughs> hey, this is the real stuff, man. You can talk to someone about NASCAR all day. You start talking about Jesus, they get real uncomfortable. Because this is it. And so here are these people have a reprobate mind. Now look at 1 John 5, 16. And we're going to close with this. I know I end up preaching all the time. I start out intending to teach, and I get all wound up. Chapter 16, 1 John 5. If a man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and it shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is sin unto death. There is sin unto death. John is saying that we can get to a point as Christians. Now, we talked about God's deadline 
for lost people. We don't know where it is, but we know that they cross it at a certain point. God knows that. And they start to sin worse and worse with no conviction or conscience. But did you know Christians can sin unto death? Let me tell you something. The Bible tells us that when we sin, the Spirit of God convicts us. When we continue, look at, look at Romans. Uh, we got to look at Romans for 6, 1 and 2. I said it's the last verse and I lied to you. Wasn't a premeditated lie. I'm just changing my mind. Romans 6, 1 and 2. You've got to mark this. It says, shall we, what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And it says, God forbid. You know what that means in the Greek? It means God will not allow it to happen. We cannot continue in sin without consequences. That's why we have to confess our sin day in and day out all day long to get cleansed from it. Let me tell you something. If you are in sin and you don't confess it and you keep doing it and you don't confess it and you keep doing it and you don't confess it and you keep doing it and you don't confess it and you keep doing it, you're going to get not only warned, you're finally going to get spanked. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that God's chasing is grievous. He knows what hurts us the most. I've heard Christians say, God did this in my life because I was in sin. And it took this to get my attention. And they've shared stories that were like unbelievably horrible. I was in sin. I was continuing in sin. I wasn't repentant. I wasn't confessing. And God took my leg. And I've lived for God ever since he took my leg. Oh, Jacob, God touched his hip and he walked different in more ways than one. God will chasten us, and guess what? If we continue to ignore God's chastening and God's conviction, He can take us out of this world. He'll ground us permanently. Because He will not allow us to continue. Remember that. You'd better confess your sin. The great thing about that is 1 John 1, 9 is there. All we have to do is admit to, oh God, I've sinned again. And guess what happens? He cleanses us. Folks, you better confess it. You better not continue in it because you'll be chastened and chastened and chastened and I've been there. I was a basketball player in junior college. I could do, go I could, without running, I could just go up and dunk two hands behind my head. I had basketball scholarships offers. I actually came to Tennessee Temple and back in the 70s they had really good basketball teams. We had a 6'9 front line that came down here and I got my cast off the week, the last week of the year, and they had the rebounder on 11-7, and James Ransburg was six foot nine, he couldn't get it, and I walked out there without running and pulled that ball. But you know what? Prior to the season, I was up in my church gym, and I had dunked a ball, and I landed on a guy's foot, and I broke my ankle. And God took basketball away from me at Tennessee Temple, because he had other plans for me. The last game of the year, I played seven minutes, and that was it. Ended up meeting my wife, surrendering to go to the mission field, and 40, 41 years later, here I am, sharing that story with you. God chastened me. He knew much, how much I loved that game, but I wouldn't confess my sin. I wouldn't stop, and God took something that meant a lot to me. And then I began to serve the Lord, and I got right with him, and I went down to Panama, and I'm way over, I'm not way over time, it's five to eight. And I went to Panama, 
And some guys came up and said, you play ball? And I said, yeah, and I met them at the gym and I played. They said, we want you on our team, the Panama Canal Commission team. We play in the military leagues. It was big time basketball. And God allowed me to be one of the productive players and I made the All-Star game 10 years in a row. And so God gave me 10 years of military basketball because I got right with him. I really don't believe I'd have had those chances and those, that fun if I didn't surrender to the Lord. He took it away in college. He later gave it back. You know, God's good. The goodness of God leads people to repentance. We always want to talk about the chastisement. And that leads people to repentance too. But don't forget it. The goodness of God is a big part of why you're right with God. Listen, confess your sin. In my last two questions, have you listened to the Holy Spirit, been convicted of your sinfulness and repented? If you don't repent, you'll never be saved. It takes repentance for you to be born again. And then after repent and you get saved, confess, confess, confess. That's all about fellowship. And I have here, share your testimony. Write that down when you get home. And that's for you to remember what God brought you from. We'll talk about that on Sunday. Let's pray. God, thank you. Lord, I felt your presence tonight because your word was opened. And I know that uh, you bless when we just follow your leadership. And I thank you for your word. Bless us now as a church. Help us, Lord, to reach the lost while it's daylight. Because the night cometh when we can't do your work. Help us to reach the lost. Bless now in Jesus' name.